Welcome to the podcast where I invite you on a journey to explore meaning, vulnerability and purpose through the lens of a life lived in geekdom. I'm David Monteith and I am the Naked Geek. Welcome to the first ever interview episode. In fact, I don't like the word interview. I prefer conversation. Let's go with conversation. Welcome to the first ever conversation episode of The Naked Geek, where I invite a guest into my boudoir to talk about uh, their lives and the impression of geekdom on their lives. And in this first ever conversation episode is a man whose fascination for animals, insects and all sorts of xenobiology is legendary. And a lot of his creations will make perfect sense when you understand that he studied zoology and psychology at university. The other thing that's legendary is his ability to write. In 2016, he won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for what I consider one of the best sci-fi books ever, which was Children of Time. It's Adrian Tchaikovsky, author extraordinaire. And as I welcome Adrian to the boudoir, I actually start for taking him to task for completely ignoring a request I made of him a few years back. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Yeah, and I, I do remember, I'll say this now that I remember being at the Kitschy Awards with you and I was sitting next to you and we were talking about the Shadows of the App series and I remember going, please just slow down and stop writing for a while so I can catch up. And what did you do? You went and wrote, what, 10 of them? <laughs> yeah, mind if that was the, um, the Kitschies, that must have been towards the end of the series, I think. Yeah, well, well, you didn't stop writing or slow down. So thank you very much for that. Also, so the other thing that I wanted to put on you and just to kind of guilt trip you about was um, I was in hospital with COVID recently. And for some reason, I decided to read Children of Ruin, which is oh. the sequel <laughs> to Children of Time. And my brain was at a particularly it was in a particularly malleable phase at the time. There are there are intelligent octopus, octopuses, octopi. I can't. It's... Oh, oh God. well, I, I go through, I go I use all three in the book from different characters, but I think. Well, let me get this straight. Octopuses is correct. Octopodes is correct. That kind of sounds weirdly up itself. Octopi <laughs> is incorrect, but is also the nicest sounding one. Yeah, yeah. Let's just go with that. <laughs> the thing is, I, you know, I've tentacles and suckers in general freak me out. And yet while reading this book, the thought of swimming with octopi embedded itself in my head in such a way that when I went to the swimming pool with my kids, I was like, where are the octopuses? Where are the <laughs> octopi? And I, was like, I have no desire to swim with them. But for some reason, you've kind of imprinted this desire in my brain and it's your fault. And I'm holding <laughs> you accountable for this. Not not pleased. <laughs> so, I'm not sorry. Uh, no <laughs> we say no more all right my first question to you has is a purpose of nothing really it's just so you got a, an honorary doctorate yes what, um what does that mean i mean can does that mean you can actually be called dr tchaikovsky or does it not work like that it does i mean it's not some i i kind of feel so when this came through my wife um was in the last year of her actual academic doctorate in music psychology <laughs> and was just on the point of submitting her what, thesis. And then Lincoln University got hold of me and said, hey, we'd like to offer you an, an honorary doctorate. And she nearly killed me <laughs> because she'd been working on it for years. Um, so I, I, I'm kind of not allowed to call myself a 
Dr. Tchaikovsky because she she is Dr. Tchaikovsky and she has earned it. And I I, I kind of feel well, it, it is it is a, a marvelous honor. I'm I am genuinely truly grateful. But at the same time, I also you know, I have not done the work that a doctorate entails, and I'm not really a doctor in that sense. I love that's made my day. Actually, <laughs> I love to have been a fly on the wall when that news came through in the household. <laughs> Um, also, why? I mean, I studied applied biology, and I wanted to be an actor. What made you? Because uh, you, you're a legal, you were qualified legal exec. If I'm yeah, yeah. Why? Why? Oh god. Well, I mean, honestly, the it, it makes sense if you work from the principle that the only thing I've ever wanted to be is a writer, and everything else has kind of been secondary to that. So. Yeah, I studied psychology and zoology at university. I honestly, I came out of both subjects somewhat disillusioned. Mm. Um, so it's it's very much the case that the sort of things I write from don't come from my university studies. The subjects I chose to study at university come from the place I was already in, but would lead to that that writing. Do you consider that a waste of time then, or have you taken important things from that? Um, I university was not a waste of time at all. You, I mean, one of the things university did was it actually polished me into a functioning human being uh in a social sense which was i mean that and the the um the college i attended to retake my my a levels uh because frankly i completely crapped out on my first set of a levels um they basically allowed me to grow as a person and become someone who was you know even halfway functional in functional in society and i made a lot of friends at university i had a lot of great experiences and, you know, I still came out of it with a degree, not a terribly good degree, but a, a degree nonetheless. But at the end, I basically found that the subjects I had chosen to take were not, didn't do what I'd thought they were going to do, I mm. guess, is the thing. Mm. Um, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm someone who has a particular fondness for insects. And the one zoology lecture I got into um, that was to do with insects basically started out, and here is how we kill insects for <laughs> agriculture. And they, this is not what I want to learn. And the one I got into about um, animal behavior was very heavily weighted towards um, a chap called Skinner, who was basically animals are robots. They don't think, they don't feel. You can kind of experiment on them to your heart's content. It doesn't matter. None of the, none Lovely. of which at least really jived terribly well with the way I see the world. Um, yeah. So it was all a bit um, disillusioning in the end, but I absolutely wouldn't say the time was wasted. It was just maybe there were other subjects I could have done which would have been a better fit. Um, I mean, I'd like to say possibly something kind of Englishy lit, English lit sort of thing, but on the other hand, possibly I'd have come out of that with feeling completely disillusioned about writing. So mm. maybe that's not a good thing. The, um, the law, uh, I mean, I, I, having come out of university, I then had no money and needed some sort of job. And the only people who were hiring at the time were the legal aid board, which I tell like the, 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 the intervention board were hiring who because they were they were like dealing with agricultural claims from the BSE um, crisis. Right. I so I got a job there for two weeks um, because most of the job was basically receiving these um, completely out of order stacks of paper from abattoirs and trying to match them up with farmers' claims. And a lot of these pieces of paper were still spattered with dried oh, blood. Wow, scintillating! Yeah, dried infected blood wow um so fun so two weeks of that and then the legal aid board was hiring because they had a massive backlog of paper paperwork they needed to sort out before they changed the computer system and that kind of turned me on to the legal profession and because there was nowhere to go from base level at the legal aid board i ended up getting a job with the legal secretary purely because my writing meant i had the typing speed 
So right. the whole thing was just this weird cascade of coincidences. And then the legal executive stuff came because I could learn on the job and uh, train while doing the secretary's work. Right. What a, what a journey. <laughs> which which you're, I'm guessing you're, you're happy to be out of right now. Well, no, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I've worked at three different firms as a legal executive and I've really enjoyed at least the, the people and mm. the work, the actual experience at two of those firms. Uh, but the actual work was stressful and there were bits of it I could do and there were bits of it I was maybe not so good at. And so... And I think my life, my life has certainly felt a lot easier now I'm not going into an office. And obviously that turned out to be a, have a variety of fringe benefits over the last year or so. Yes, just a little. And no, no spattered blood, though. So that's, uh, that's a positive. Less, less. Spattered less spattered blood. blood, yeah. Working from home tends to. Well, you've got a child, so <laughs> 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 these things could happen. I, I was really, um, this, this word, there was a sentence you said while you were talking about um, university helping you to become a, a functioning human, so to speak. Mm. Um, and, and I think what the Naked Geek is all about is kind of exposing the way that the, the the things that we love have helped us develop in that way. So but we'll, we'll come to that. So I just want to go way back. So as a kid, mm-hmm. do you recall when you first read or watched or heard something from the genre, whatever it may be, that kind of captured your imagination or or was your gateway experience into, into the form? So I think the, the first thing that I recall being very fanish about at an incredibly early age was, uh, must have been the Christopher Reeve Superman Right. Um, because I can, I, I got my mother to make me like a red Superman cloak with a, one of those stickers you got on the back that always kind of died in the wash almost immediately. Excellent. Um, and then uh, Star Wars was, the, was then the big thing growing up. Weirdly enough, I did not get to see Star Wars until after Empire came out because oh. I was in Lincolnshire and no damn place was, was, was showing it. So I read the like the tie-in novels and comics and everything you could get hold of and considered myself insanely knowledgeable about Star Wars without ever having seen the film. What um, do, you, do you recall the emotions that went with seeing Superman and Star Wars for the first time? Um, honestly, what I mostly recall is kind of making up my own Star Wars-related stuff with action figures and things like that, because that's, mm. that's tended to over, overwrite my initial kind of... Um, Con- contact with the original stuff because I mean I, I've, I've always been someone who's sort of constantly confabulating in that kind of way and so um, the whole Star Wars thing for me became very much about a lot of the peripheral characters and the alien and the robot and things like that and I could kind of take or leave Luke and Han Solo and all <laughs> that. <laughs> I love that do you think I mean do you think that's that desire to do that has formed the core of who you are now or does it go that far back I think it probably does. I mean, the way think it's, I mean, there's a big jump at around the age of 17 where I actually start writing it as prose. Mm. Before then, I'm kind of, I ran a lot of role-playing game campaigns. And before then, you know, just as, as, a, as a kid, it was very much all about imaginative play. So, and just, you know, create very, um, but also very much going off the beaten track, making my own stories rather than just replicating the stories that, that yes, the, um, any yes, particular yeah. property gave me. Yeah, I think there's something key about that. I was, <laughs> I was very standard in my <laughs> in my playing. I was just, you know, uh, mimicking what I saw. But I think that um, that ability to go outside of that is quite interesting and probably something that hadn't occurred to me as a kid that I could, you know, make it my own. So, 
did role play when you discovered role playing was that like something extraordinary to, i mean how old are you when that happened and was that an extraordinary progression for you yeah i mean i must have been about 13 um when that kicked off i mean it was it was it was the thing that certainly swept um through my school and there were quite a lot of people who were in, in it into it very briefly but it, it became one of my main ma- mainstays but in all, and it also frankly became one of my ways for uh making friends because the Historically, I, I've generally I've had a small number of friends that I'm I've been very very close with. I mean, my, my um, there are still three people from my secondary school that I'm still in contact with and still game with, for example. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it, it very much it came became a big part of my kind of mental landscape. And I think partly that was because, well, because it was very much aimed for and catering for someone exactly in my kind of position, but also it gave you that opportunity. It gave you a just enough structure to build on and just enough freedom to, uh, to do what you wanted. But do you think that, I mean, before that came along, were you very much in your own, in your own head or? Yeah. But I, I mean, I think that, I guess the big thing with role-playing is it's a social activity that you kind of, re, you, re, you know, obviously fighting fantasy books and so forth aside, you kind of need mm. a group of people to get the most out of it um and there are kind of such things as solo role-playing experiences but they're very much not the same um from 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 my perspective so i think that's a big leap from just kind of inventing stories in your head or even just playing um you know as, as a child you play imaginative games with other children you make the rules up as you go along and you throw it all together and then it all kind of is gone and you don't generally repeat the same thing again or build on it they're all yeah they're very fleeting instances of um or building Mm. Um, and this is, I mean, this is one of the things of course, I don't know how I would have been if there had been a thing like Minecraft when I was a kid, because obviously that is, that is a, a persistent creative endeavor that, um, that much younger children, um, get involved in these days. Uh, but the thing with, um, because of its social aspect and also purely because it has that scaffolding there in this, in the rules and the dice and, um, the kind of given axioms of the world that any, any particular game is giving you, I think it, it um well all right, there's a so bi- biological um biological analogy insect analogy even uh, so segmentation um there's a there's a theory that you know insects are built on segment and each segment kind of repeats the previous you know you have the same elements in each segment you've got legs and breathing bits and so forth and there's a theory that the genetic development of this segmentation was the colossal revolution in in life on earth because it means you effectively have that shorthand it's a bit like yeah when you've got a computer program saying 20 go to 10 Mm. uh, which means you're not writing out everything out everything longhand you can just say do it again do it again do it again and it suddenly means you have a basic structure that you can build all this other weird and wonderful stuff on and in a way the rules systems of a role-playing game is something that can absolutely turbocharge basic imaginative play and imagination into something much bigger because you've got all that stuff to help you climb up mm. because it's doing so much of that work for you rather than you having to invent it afresh every time i mean so you're citing that something incredibly important in your development you think yeah i genuinely i mean i think i mean i like there are several specific sort of writing skills that i can absolutely say have come from <laughs> playing a lot of role-playing games i mean it's it's and but aside from that just purely the fact that it is an imaginative exercise Mm. but it's also an exercise where you're having to take into account the wishes feelings of other people because one of the big things as a writer is not just inventing the story it's the fact that you've got to communicate that story to other people and know how that 
story is going to land with a with a readership that you don't have control over well interestingly do you find that having an editor how has the experience of being edited changed for you from your first book to your last book well i I was very so my first editor was a chap called peter lavery who i've always felt was very much one of the very very last of the old school editors in the business he was very much the sort of editor that when you went down to see your agency the publishers you would get together with peter lavery and you and your agent and he and his assistant would end up in a pub garden somewhere with eight bottles of wine empty under the table and (laughs) the entire afternoon and some of the evening gone which is the thing you read about a lot in kind of publishing tales of yore but doesn't tend to happen these days yeah he was he was one of the last of the old school in that respect but also he was one of the last of the old school in that he edited with a capital e i would get from him an entire printed out manuscript with pencil annotations on every single line of suggestions and changes and amendments wow and one of the problems I had getting in going in as a writer was I'm from a particular generation of school children who were not taught grammar, who were not taught any of the knots and bolts of how the English language works. You maybe learned it as a, in a foreign language, you might have learned French grammar, you didn't learn English grammar. And so most of what I should have known already, I picked up from Peter Lavery teaching me how to write. Right. Um, but he was very much one of the last do it, last people who were working at that level. And now obviously, first of all, it's all done online. Obviously, you have, and frankly, I'm not sure I'd now want to go back to that pencil editing thing because my better for your liver. Time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's that as well. I guess, but it's um, you know dealing with um, an annotated manuscript in Word is a lot easier um, to to zip through. But I absolutely needed that level of attention at the time I first came into the business. Now, um, did you guess, did you find yourself getting defensive though? Did always and it's something thankfully by then I'd kind of got to the point where I was able to 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 kind of give myself a bit of a talking to and say well look you know this is these people know what they're doing and you know by all means if you think there's a thing that you don't have to do they always they generally tell you you know these are all only suggestions but even if you know if something's flagged up and you think well they obviously haven't understood what I've written if they're making that amendment the the knock on there is well i obviously haven't communicated it very well and maybe i need another way to say what i want to say if it's not coming across so mm. i mean i do get defensive and it's one of the big it's i suspect most authors are very protective about what they've written at the start and you get to the point where i mean actually you frankly you never quite get out of that mindset you just mean something you've got to keep whipping back because you're not always the best arbiter of your own work. I mean, I still mm-hmm. rely heavily on it, on editors. And although it tends to be, it doesn't tend to be quite such detailed work now, there's still quite a lot of um, points in time where I'll get a suggestion through and I'll immediately have this kickback of, no, no, it's perfect. It's fine. It's golden. Doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? And then you've got to take a step back and think, well, actually, look, if it, have a look at it at least, have a look and have a read through and think, well, you know, do you, you know, do you want to, to die on this hell, as it were? Do you want to think of a different way of saying it or do you want to just take this take the suggestion as proffered and it's it's all very case by it often gets very case by case do you um do your editors have, i'm just looking now i'm looking at children of time i'm looking at the tiger and the wolf i'm looking at guns of dawn on my shelf and do you ever get your editors going oh for god's sake adrian just write something shorter um well i mean shards of earth which has has just come out lost a about 10,000 words. I think, wow. <laughs> wow. I do still write over, write over long. And one of the things I, I still do and, um, and need to be brought up on is I will, 
insert lots of fun world building stuff, which I find absolutely fascinating, which slows the, the pace of the book down to a crawl because I want to explain how very clever I've been in this or that piece <laughs> of my, my universe. Um, and that sort of thing has to go. And that's, that's a big chunk of the book. And yeah, th- th- that's a big chunk of the cuts that tend to happen. But it is a thing that I don't seem to be able to stop myself doing it. It's a thing that I rely on editors to bring me up on. I find that I have a neat, there are times where I, there are passages in lots of people's books where I find my eyes skimming over certain descriptions. And yet I wouldn't have it any other way because I love the, the invented science behind it. And I want to know what it is. And I find that even if my eyes do tend to skip over it, I like to have the option to go back and read that and understand it further, which is a weird conundrum. I mean, also, there are no hard and fast rules. I mean, people... There are a whole there are a whole set of writing advice maxims, things like show don't tell and stuff like that, and they're none of them uniformly true. They're always a thing. There's you know maybe you want to keep in mind that it, you don't want to overdo this or that, but sometimes you do want to show. Sometimes you do want to do the other things that people say never do because the book is right for it. I mean, one of the things with Children of Time, one of the reasons I kind of thought it was going to to die on its ass, frankly, was that oh, did you really? there's, a, there's a lot of, well, it was a punt. Remember, at the time, I was basically a mid-list fantasy author mm. with this idea, I want to write this science fiction book about spiders. And I can see how that would not really, that doesn't were, really work on paper, does it? <laughs> they were very iffy about it. Um, it was not a book, you know, it, it, it ended up with quite a, quite a, you know, an extremely small advance compared to the fantasy books. It was, I think, a bit of a punt because I was doing well enough that they wanted to keep me happy or something like that. But it's got a lot of exposition on it. It's got a lot of me basically talking to the reader about how the biology of the spiders works because you kind of have to do it. There's no way in the narrative that you can you can't have one spider talking to another saying, well, as you know, Bob, this is how our bodies function. Um, I love the idea of a spider called Bob, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you've got to you just got to bite the bullet and. And I kind of imagined it a bit like a David Attenborough documentary because it's all done in that. I mean, this is the whole, all the spider bits are written in the present tense mm-hmm. um, because that's how David Attenborough narrates things. They say, you know, this, this animal is doing this now and now he's doing this. Uh, and that was the, the kind of the form I was going for. But you, it's just got a, it's got a lot of me talking about um, evolution and biology. And it, wor- it seems to work. The books, the books has done well enough that I think I can say fairly solidly that it works really well but some it's also absolutely the way that people would tell you not to write a book how i mean the, the, there was a sentence there that um, my, my ears pricked up at which was you know it has to be you you said it has to be me um and uh, would that be key advice you'd give to any writer i mean is there the temptation to write for the audience rather than write for yourself what's the right is there a right way round for that um i think i mean this is interesting i mean i'm, I'm probably about to do a bit of um authorly heresy here i mean i think a lot of a lot of people's advice seems to be well you write for yourself and if you write for yourself and it's it, for the truest kind of noblest way then then your purpose will shine through and your readership will instantly get what you're saying and i i kind of think that's probably not the case and i think that if i was writing purely for myself i'd be writing books that no one in their right mind would want to read <laughs> i think that having an awareness of what your audience will expect from any given book from any given subgenre of book is very important. And I think that, you know, if only because you plan to subvert it, 
Mm. It doesn't mean you actually have to give them what they expect, but I think you have to know what they expect. And I think that is, that is a big thing. And it's, 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 um, it's underrated um, as a writing tool. And I think it's, it's also very hard, but I mean, Lord knows one thing I am is a reader. So if nothing else, I can at least know, I know what I react to as a reader. So I'm at least, you know, I'm writing for at least a narrow class of reader that reads books in the way that I read books and that looks for things, you know, that enjoys the things that I enjoy. And so I'm always writing a book that I know I would like, want to read if someone else had read it. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think writing, I mean, there's always going to be, there's always going to be a readership for anything, but I think having an idea of, there's that idea of a contract between the reader and the writer. And I think it's, 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 it's something that can be taken, taken to unwise extremes perhaps, but it's the idea there is something you, there are questions <clears throat> that you need to answer that your readers will be unsatisfied if you don't answer. There are, mm. there are places, you know, it, it's a bit like, you know, if you have a character that's very important, then they just wander off halfway through the book and never come back and you just don't mention them. It's unsatisfying. Um, if you're doing it because that's your specific point and it's meant to be unsatisfying, then that's fine. If you're doing it because you just run out of things to do in the plot, maybe you need to rework the plot to give them a better end or give them a function later on or something like that. There are lots of things like that, which I suspect most authors kind of work do fairly instinctively um, that give a book its shape and its uh, structure and work for an audience. And I know certainly I've read books which haven't landed on that structural point. For example, if you have a book that's part of a large series and but the individual book doesn't have a structure of its own, mm. it's simply a chunk of sausage so to speak, rather than it, an individual thing with its own shape. I find that as a reader very unsatisfying because you, you feel you are due a payoff at finishing 350 pages of book. I remember that with very much with uh, the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time stuff. There was about six books in the middle that, <laughs> that I felt they were just part of the sausage factory. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think, epic, I think epic fantasy is quite prone to it as a as, as a certainly of, of epic fantasy of a particular period when basically publishers assumed right this series is working just keep writing books please just keep going and i think that you get the authors who are in a bit of a trap at that point say well i've got to keep writing that book i want to do something else my heart's not in it but this is where the mortgage is being paid from so uh, i will keep turning out basically uh, i mean there was my 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 agent recalls a i think it was an amazon review on that particular series where someone said i feel like a hamster in the wheel of time <laughs> i mean and i should say i have not read i have not read um, robert jordan at all so i have no direct uh comment on that but it i know i have read other fan, other fancy series of that era and i think there absolutely was this kind of treadmill mm. um, ethos going on in publishing is this is working keep doing it well, why not? I mean, you you see the same thing with a lot of TV shows, really, don't you? It's like that really doesn't yeah. need to be 22 yeah. episodes long. Jordan is insanely popular. It obviously landed for an awful lot of people. Mm. It's a bit like, uh, I mean, there are, there are very, most genres have at least some corner where repeating the familiar is exactly what people want as readers. That is what they go there for. And this is what I mean about being, knowing what your readership wants. If that is what your readership wants, then that's kind of, you know, if you don't give them that, then you have to at least understand that they might be a bit miffed that they're not getting it. Mm. Well, let me, want... sorry, go on. Let, let me ask you this in terms of, uh, well, in terms of uh, the themes you may explore that may be in your own head. Just, I was reading the uh, premise of Long Walk. Did I say that right? How do you say uh, Walking to Elderburn. Yeah. Walking to Elderburn. And it was the, and I looked at it and it, it totally 
set in a mild panic. I mean, not really a mild panic, but I could feel that kind of, there was a little fear in there. And I was trying to, what is that about? And I, it was this fear of being lost, I suddenly thought, and not just, you know, not just physically, but being lost sort of mentally in your world and where you're going. And I thought, I kind of have to read that because <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm attracted to something which kind of gives me an instinctive fear. Have you ever written something that kind of freaks you out a little bit or, you know? Um... It's interesting because I mean a lot of the stuff um, I, I I'm aware I'm kind of I often write about things that freak a lot of people out that do not in any way impact on me in the same way. I mean, yeah, with spiders being very much the poster child for that, but yeah, a lot of other absolutely. stuff. Um, and again, it's to do with you know that audience expectation. If you know it's going to freak people out, you can have a lot of fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> There are some bits of Children of Ruin which are absolutely. Uh, uh, yes, I know. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. <laughs> yes, I know that quite definitively. <laughs> I mean, I think the things, the things that scare me, the things that freak me out that I work, that I write about, are are human things. Mm. Um, I I love and really enjoy writing about the alien and the uncanny and the other. Um, the things that I re I'm really scared about are they turn up in books like Doors of Eden and Bearhead and they're to do with what people do to people and what people do to it's not what the other does to us it's what we do to the other yeah I, I saw that a lot in Dogs of War mm -hmm. yeah and actually and the you know the right that we assume we have to do those things to people yes yes it's, it's absolutely that and, you know it's basically you know, at the end at the end of the day we're not you know, you can have as 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 many um, little you know invasions of little green men sort of stories and Independence Day stories and so forth. But at the end of the day, the our big enemy is us. Mm. You know, it's 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 not aliens. It's not it's not even as it turns out, kind of like ah, oh, random asteroid from space. We're going to kill us. We are we are the problem that we need to deal with. What I what I found slight departure. What I found fascinating, and a lot of authors have been doing it, and I think it's kind of impossible not to do it. In in uh, as you kind of uh, as you kind of future proof the future, if you like, is so many characters have got implants. You know, they can look up things just with a thought and so on. At this, I mean, assuming we had the technology, would you be in line to have that in, the ability implanted in you, or is that something you would like? hell no i mean this i mean i i guess i would say yes but at the same time i'm aware that as i've got older my luddite tendencies have got more and more <laughs> which is more more just me be fine god i have to learn another piece of conferencing software and i have to you know it it's one of the one of the things you see in the future is it always works one way whenever people have things like implants and so forth in science fiction there is one type of implant everyone has it it all works the same way it's this unified, global, wonderful thing. We're all plugged in. It's terribly convenient. Um, what you don't get in science fiction is, yeah, there are 19 different types of thing. None of them talk to each other properly. Yeah. It's all insanely difficult. Everyone uses a different one. So if you want to talk to this person, you have to get their thing. And then it clashes with your thing. And it's just, and, and that's they, kind of and how they never seem a lot to of glitch, technology. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, implants, in theory, it just does seem to be one of the absolute givens of any kind of technologically utopic science fiction thing is everyone, you know, you have an implant. It's basically, it's like everyone has a mobile phone, except you don't physically have to get it out of your pocket. It just links to your brain and does things and yeah. it's wonderful. But I'm kind of simultaneously going, it's not even knowing that it might fry my brain. It's just having to learn the operating system. <laughs> 
feels ex- just the sheer thought it seems exhausting yeah i hear you i've got a couple more questions for you if your if your 12 year old self could peek into the future is there a particular work of yours you think he would be most uh, wowed by that's interesting because i mean i've actually tried so my son is 13 and i've tried him on a few of mine and the <laughs> one well the, the one that really landed was the the novella the expert systems brother um, oh okay is not terribly well known in the uk it uh, was out from the U- u.s publisher tour and you can only really get it if you really hunt um or if you go to say forbidden planet in london they usually have a few um but that that clicked with him really well and i think one of the i mean my son is autistic and the book is very much about someone who gets cut off from his society at a very basic level to the extent that he's he 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 effectively it's quite quite hard to say without spoiling the plot but he he effectively he 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 ceases to be recognized by them as one of them Mm. socially and so he becomes this automatic outcast who has to find his own way his own way in the world completely outside society on this um sort of alien alien world um, but it has a, it's not entirely a bad thing. It has other advantages. Um, and he that particularly resonated with him, I think. And I suspect, I mean, when I was a, frankly, when I was a kid at school, they weren't testing for autism, but I suspect I would probably have been um, on the spectrum had they done so at the mm. time. And I think this, this is probably the one that would have clicked with me as well. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, the, well, I mean, you know, just looking at those things which do sort of help us along i think the last couple of years have been particularly rough on most of us is there anything you've read that you would recommend in the last few years which you just found you know that's that's helped me get through the last few years that was fun to read that was fascinating um what what could i read to get me through this last leg of covid Ooh, well, I mean, I'm going to say the, the, the stuff, the most, uh, the science fiction that I find is most kind of uplifting is definitely Becky Chambers, um, all of her Wayfarers series. Uh, I mean, I got, I read the most recent one um, a few months ago, I think, and it's all extremely good, but it's also, it's very, very positive in a way that very little science fiction is. It's talking mm. about, as, you know, it's talking about ordinary people in a, of varying species making their lives in in the future in space and you know they have problems but they're very much ordinary people problems and they tend to come together to solve them there's often a big sense of community and bridging interspecies gaps and things like that and i absolutely love them yeah absolutely i've only read the first one and it was yeah i completely agree do you know i I get this thing i read i read one and i enjoy it so much i get scared to read the second one in case it doesn't um I will up. say the I think the second one is my favorite of that series and it made me cry. Ah, good to know. Good to know. Right, I'll put a link to that in the show or- notes. Yeah, closed in common orbit, I think. Right, okay. Good to know. I'll go straight on the list. Finally, what's coming up for you in terms of writing? Are there any concepts you haven't played with yet that you want to? Oh, always plenty. Um loads and loads. I've got a I mean, I'm currently collecting uh I'm I'm working quite a way ahead in far of stuff I'm kind of signing the contracts on. So I'm collecting ideas. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned walking to, um, walking to Alderaan. Uh, that set of novellas for Rebellion, uh, which is six novellas, is now done. And it's effectively, it's two sets of three. Mm. Um, so walking to Alderaan and the time travel novella, One Day All This Will Be Yours, and an upcoming novel, which might 
turn out to be called um, and put away childish things. Those are all, all three of those are about that concept of getting being lost and alone in a, in a strange and uncanny place or, you know, or time or, or just somewhere that people are not really meant to be. Um, and the other three, which is uh, what Ironclad's Firewalkers and the mm. upcoming Ogres is a basically, it's, it's, it's a trio of increasingly unpleasant and weird dystopias and, and sort of bad futures. Um, but they want more. Um, we're looking at more novellas for them. So I'm collecting novella ideas now and they're stacking up quite nicely. Um, I'm finishing off the Architect series, The Start of the Shards of Earth. Literally this morning, I wrote the big climactic scene for the last book of that. Um, after which I'm hopefully going to go and get to, get to do some fancy again, which I've not done for quite a long time. Um, so yeah, no, it's uh, that will be a very nice change of pace and a chance to stretch myself in a bit of a uh, bit of a different direction. So you're you're still not you know taking any heed of what I've asked and just slowing down a bit so I can catch up. You've just uh, no, no. I mean, I, I kind of figure at some point I'll die, and then <laughs> I'll, at that point the writing will probably sort of eventually slow down, but. <laughs> Fine, I'll, I'll just look forward unless, to that. Unless I, can get, I? unless I can get myself uploaded into a computer, at which point, uh, who knows? <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Well, thanks <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. This vision of the future there with Adrian Tchaikovsky living forever and never stopping writing. <laughs> uh, will I ever catch up? This is the question uh, that I long to, 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 to find out the answer to. But thank you, Adrian, for your time. It was absolutely fantastic. And uh, for sharing with us the things you've done. And uh, yeah, our... <laughs> There's always an Adrian Tchaikovsky book on my to-read list and it just keeps growing. Um, yeah. I Also, one of the things I really love uh, from your blog, and you can find uh, Adrian's blog at shadowsoftheapt.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes, is when you take your own books and you do um, uh, a movie casting for it, a preferred yes. casting. I mean, that's, I, no, it's fantastic. And I love the choices you come up with. They're brilliant. Um, so once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on. Now, I really enjoyed chatting with Adrian and getting an overview of and an insight into the process that has taken him from child to adult writer of the influences, expected or unexpected, that have shaped him and his work. However, there was one thing I took away from this chat that I wasn't expecting to and I didn't really see coming. It was when he was talking about his book, The Expert Systems Brother, and the fact that this was the book his autistic son connected to the most, as would Adrian's own 12-year-old self, who may have registered on the spectrum if they did testing back then. It occurs to me now, as I'm reflecting on our chat, that I'm asking something with this podcast. I'm asking for vulnerability and openness without taking the time to think about what that might mean for someone who's not neurotypical. And by extension... What does that mean for the way I interact in general? What does that mean for my understanding of human nature and the way I interact with those around me without giving it a second thought? Um, interestingly, I recently, quite recently, bought a sci-fi book for my daughter called The Infinite. Infinite? The Infinite by Patience Agbabi, whose hero is a 12-year-old autistic girl. So it's good to see a non-neurotypical representation out there. And I'm looking forward to reading it myself, but... Uh, like I said, I've been left with much to think about, and I guess I owe Adrian thanks for inadvertently giving me um, much food for thought. So thank you for uh, listening. So thank you for listening to The Naked Geek once again. Hope you enjoyed it and check out some of Adrian's work. It's well worth the time.
And once again, I'm going to ask you one favour. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. Till next time, I'm David Monteith. I'm the Naked Geek. <laughs>